Kafka on the Shore, Chapter 33 I get the library ready to open before Oshima arrives. Hoover all the floors, wipe the windows, clean the toilet, wipe down all the chairs and desks. Spray the banister, polish it to a nice shine. Dust the stained glass on the landing. Sweep the garden, switch on the air conditioning in the reading room and the storeroom's dehumidifier. Make coffee, sharpen pencils. A deserted library in the morning, there's something about it that really gets to me. All possible words and ideas are there, resting peacefully. I want to do what I can to preserve this place, keep it neat and tidy. Sometimes I come to a halt and gaze at all the silent books on the stacks, reach out and touch the spines of a few. At 10.30 as always, the master Miyata roars into the car park and Oshima appears. Looking a little sleepy, we chat for a while until it's time to open. If it's okay, I'd like to go out for a while. I tell him once we're open. Where to? I need to go to the gym and work out. I haven't taken any exercise for a while. That wasn't the, re- the only reason. Miss Saiki comes in to work late in the morning and I don't want to bump into her. I need some time to get my thoughts together before I see her again. Oshima looks at me and after a pause, nods. Watch out though, I don't want to henpeck you, but you can't be too careful, okay? Don't worry, I'll be careful, I assure him. Backpack slung from one shoulder, I board the train. At Takamatsu station, I catch a bus to the fitness club. I change into my gym clothes in the locker room, then do some circuit training, plugged into my walkman. Prince blasting away. It's been a while and my muscles complain, but I manage its body's normal reaction. Muscles screaming out, resisting the extra burden put on them. Listening to Little Red Corvette, I try to soothe that reaction, suppress it. I take a deep breath, hold it, exhale. Inhale, hold, exhale. Even breathing, over and over. One by one, I push my muscles to the limit. I'm sweating like crazy, my shirt soaked and heavy. I have to go over to the cooler a few times to gulp down the water. I go through the machines in the usual order, my mind filled with Miss Saiki. I have a shower, change into fresh underwear and catch the bus back to the station. Hungry, I duck into a cafe near the station and have a quick meal. As I'm eating, I realize this, this is where I ate on my first day in Takamatsu. Which starts me wondering how many days I've been here. It's been a week or so since I started staying at the library. So I must have got to Shikoku about three weeks ago. I have some tea after I've finished eating and watch the people bustling to and fro in front of the station. They're all going somewhere. If I wanted to, I could join them. Take a train to some other place. Throw away everything here. Go to somewhere I've never been. Start from scratch. Like turning a page in a notebook, I could go to Hiroshima, Fukuoka, wherever. Nothing's keeping me here. I am 100% free. Everything I need to get by for a while is in my backpack, clothes, wash bags, sleeping bag. I have hardly touched the money I took from my father's study. But I know I can't go anywhere. But you can't go anywhere. You know that very well. The boy named Crow says, You held Miss Saiki, came inside her so many times. 
and she took it all. Your penis is still stinging, still remembering how it felt to be inside her. One of the places that's just for you. You think of the library, the tranquil, silent books lining the stacks. You think of Oshima, your room. Kafka on the shore, hanging on the wall. The 15-year-old girl gazing at the painting. You shake your head. There's no way you can leave here. You aren't free. But is that what you really want? To be free? In the station, I pass by policemen making their rounds, but they don't pay me any attention. Seems like every other person I pass is some tanned kid my age, shouldering a backpack. And I'm just one of them, melting into the scenery. No need to get jumpy. Just act natural and nobody will notice me. I jump onto the little two-car train and return to the library. Hey, you're back, Oshima says. He looks at my backpack, dumbfounded. My word, do you always lug around so much luggage with you? You're a regular Linus. I boil some water and have a cup of tea. Oshima's twirling his usual long, freshly sharpened pencil. Where his pencils finish up when they get too short, I have no idea. That backpack's like your symbol of freedom, he says. Guess so, I say. Having an object that symbolizes freedom might make a person happier than actually getting the freedom it represents. Sometimes, I say. Sometimes, he repeats. You know, if they had a contest for the world's shortest replies, you would win it hands down. Perhaps. Perhaps, Hoshima says, as if fed up. Perhaps most people in the world aren't trying to be free Kafka. They just think they are. It's all an illusion. If they really were set free, most people would be in a real pickle. You'd better remember that. People actually prefer not being free. Including you. Yeah, I prefer being unfree too. Up to a point. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Rousseau defined civilization as when people build fences. A very perceptive observation, and it's true. All civilization is the product of a fenced-in lack of freedom. The Australian aborigines are the exception though. They managed to maintain a fenceless civilization until the 17th century. They were dyed in the wool free. They could go where they wanted, when they wanted, doing what they wanted. Their lives were a literal, literal journey. Walkabout is a perfect metaphor for their lives. When the British came and built fences to pen in their cattle, the aborigines couldn't fathom it. And ignorant to the end of the principle at work, they were classified as dangerous and antisocial and were driven away to the outback. So I want you to be careful. The people who build high, strong fences are the ones who survive the best. You deny that reality only at the risk of being driven into the wilderness yourself. I go to my room and put down my backpack. Next, I head to the kitchen, brew some coffee and take it to my psyche. Metal tray in both hands, I walk carefully up each step, the old floorboards creaking. On the landing, I step through a rainbow of brilliant colors from the strained glass. Miss Psyche is sitting at her desk, writing. I put down the coffee cup and she looks up and asks me to sit in my usual chair. Today, she has on a cafe or lot like covered shirt over a black t-shirt. Her hair spinned back and she is wearing a pair of small pearl earrings. She doesn't say anything for a while. 
she is looking over what she has just written. Nothing in her expression is out of the ordinary. She screws on the cap of a fountain pen and lays it on her writing paper. She spreads her fingers, checking for ink stains. Sunday afternoon sunlight is shining through the window. Somebody is outside in the garden talking. Mr. Oshima told me that you went to the gym, she says, studying my face. That's right, I said. What kind of exercises do you do there? I use the machines and free weights, I reply. Anything else? Um, I shake my head. Bit of a lonely type of sport, isn't it? I nod. I imagine you want to become stronger. You have to be strong to survive, especially in my case. Because you are all alone? Nobody is going to help me, at least no one has until now. So I have to make it on my own. I have to get stronger, like a stray crow. That's why I gave myself the name Kafka. That's what Kafka means in Czech, you know, crow. Hmm, she says, mildly impressed. So you are a crow. That's right, I say. That's right, the boy named Crow says. There must be a limit to that kind of lifestyle though, she says. You can't use that strength as a protective wall around you. There's always going to be something stronger that can overcome your fortress, at least in theory. Strength itself becomes your morality. Miss Saiki smiles. You catch on quickly. The strength I'm looking for is in the kind where you win or lose. I'm not after a wall that will repel power coming from outside. What I want is a kind of strength to be able to absorb that outside power, to stand up to it. The strength to quietly endure things, unfairness, misfortune, sadness, mistakes, misunderstandings. That's got to be the most difficult strength of all to make your own, I know. Her smile deepens one degree. You seem to know everything. I shake my head. That's not true. I'm only 15 and there are plenty of things I don't know. I should know them, but I don't. I don't know anything about you, for one thing. She picks up the coffee cup and sips and takes a sip. There's nothing that you have to know, nothing inside me you need to know. Do you remember my theory? Of course, she says. But that's your theory, not mine. So I have no responsibility for it, right? Exactly. The person who proposes a theory is the one who has to prove it, I say. Which leads me to a question. About? You told me you had published a book about people who had been struck by lightning. That's right. Is it still available? She shakes her head. They didn't print that many copies to begin with. Um, it went out of print a long time ago and I imagine any leftover copies were destroyed. I don't even have a copy myself. As I said before, nobody was interested. Why were you interested in that subject? I'm not sure. I guess there was something symbolic about it. Or maybe I just wanted to keep myself busy. So I set a goal that kept me running around and my mind occupied. I can't recall now what the original motivation was. I came up with the idea and just started researching it. I was a writer then with no money, worries and plenty of free time. So I could more or less take on whatever sparked my interest. Once I got into it though, the subject itself was fascinating. Meeting all kinds of people, hearing all kinds of stories. If it wasn't for that project, 
I probably would have withdrawn even further from reality and ended up completely isolated. When my father was young, he worked as a caddy on a golf course and was hit by lightning. He was lucky to survive. The man he was with died. A lot of people were killed by lightning on golf courses, big wide open spaces with almost nowhere to take shelter. And lightning loves golf clubs. Was your father also named Tamura? Yes. And I think he was about your age. She shakes her head. I don't remember anybody named Tamura. I didn't interview anybody by that name. I don't say anything. That's part of your theory, isn't it? That your father and I met while I was researching the book and as a result you were born. Yes. Well, that puts an end to it, doesn't it? That never happened. Your theory doesn't stand up. Not necessarily, I say. What do you mean? Because I don't believe everything you're telling me. Why not? Well, you immediately said you had never interviewed anybody called Tamura without even giving it any thought. 20 years is a long time and you must have interviewed quite a number of people. I don't think you'd be able to recall so quickly whether one of them was or was or wasn't named Tamura. She shakes her head and takes another sip of coffee. A faint smile springs to her lips. Kafka, I... She stops, looking for the right words. I wait for her to find them. I feel as though things are starting to change around me, she says. In what way? I can't really say, but some things is happening. The air pressure, the way sounds reverberate, the reflection of light, how bodies move when time passes. It's all transforming, bit by bit. It's like each small change is a drop that's steadily building up into a stream. She picks up her black Mont Blanc pen looks at it, puts it back where it was, then looks straight at me. What happened between us in your room last night is probably part of that flow. I don't know if what we did last night was right or not, but at the time, I decided not to force myself to judge anything. If the flow is there, I thought I'd just let it carry me along where it wanted. Can I tell you what I think? Go right ahead. I think you're trying to make up for lost time. She thinks about it for a while. You may be right, she says. But how do you know that? Because I'm doing the same thing. Making up for lost time? Yes, I say. A lot of things were stolen from my childhood. Lots of important things and now I have to get them back. In order to keep on living? I nod. I have to. People need something like a place they can go back to. There's still time to make it. I think for me and for you. She closes her eyes and tends her fingers on top of her desk like she's resigned to it. She opens her eyes again. Who are you? She asks. And why do you know so much about everything? You tell her she must know who you are. I am Kafka on the shore, you say. Your lover and your son. The boy named Crow and the two of us can't be free. We are caught up in a whirlpool, pulled beyond time. Somewhere we were stuck by lightning, but not the kind of lightning you can see or hear. That night you make love again. You listen as the blank within her is filled. 
It's a faint sound, like fine sand on a shore crumbling in the moonlight. You hold your breath, listening. You are inside your theory now, then you are outside, and inside again, then outside. You inhale, hold it, exhale. Inhale, hold it, exhale. Prince sings on like some mollusk in your head. The moon rises, the tide comes in, sea water flows into a river. A branch of the dogwood just outside the window trembles nervously. You hold her close, she buries her face in your chest. You feel her breath against your bare skin. She traces your muscles one by one. And then she gently licks your swollen penis as if healing it. You come again in her mouth. She swallows it down as if every drop is precious. You kiss her vagina, touching every soft, warm spot with your tongue. You become someone else there, something else. You are someone else. There's nothing inside me you need to know, she says. Until Monday morning dawns, you hold each other, listening to time passing by.